Can you hear me now? Good. One of the best things maybe that ever happened to me was that I failed the bar exam. And I got an email from this factory in Taiwan that said, I've seen this auto blow online. I've seen some bad reviews. Do you want us to improve it for you? And I thought, oh, this is like very lucky. You're contacting me right when I'm thinking about finding a factory to improve this. This took me on a year and a half of lost time. Hi, my name is Brian Sloan. I'm originally from Chicago, but uh, I just lived 10 years in Beijing. And last year, now I moved here to Berlin, Germany. I invent, manufacture, and sell sex toys. We sell them on our e-commerce sites around the world, and we sell to a few thousand stores and distributors as well. When you were in college, is that when you decided you want to get in the industry? Yeah, for sure not. When I was in college, actually, I studied philosophy and political science. I had two majors, and then I didn't know what I was going to do. So I went to law school after that. And then even still in law school, I didn't know I'd become a sex toy inventor, really, until I think I started doing it <laughs> to about 10 years ago. You were in law school just thinking about it then? Or, or so what happens from, because I thought it was very interesting, go from, you know, I saw you went to law school, and then you're in the sex toy industry now. When was that transition made? Basically, when I was in law school, a friend of mine there took me to an antique auction just for fun. And I ended up buying an old Monopoly game there. I bought it for 30 bucks and I sold it for something like 130 bucks on eBay. And I'd never sold anything on eBay before. It really got me thinking like there I was studying in order to become an hourly worker. And then I just made 100 bucks and enjoyed myself. It didn't take that long. And I realized just from that moment, that was about halfway through law school, I realized Maybe at that point that there was, maybe I would do something else with my life that involved buying and selling things, but not necessarily sex toys. It turned into sex toys only later. You know, after law school, I became full-time buyer and seller of things on the internet. I used to go to bankruptcy auctions anywhere within 200 miles of Chicago and buy stuff, sell it on eBay. And I later started importing. I needed something to import from China. I had two weird things I found that were my own special niches I almost had to myself. One was human bones and the other was latex fetish wear. I began importing latex fetish wear at first. That was my first foray into the adult world only because there was low competition for it on eBay at the time and a lot of demand. The more latex fetish wear I sold, the more I started to understand about the niche. I later, in the same way that I basically outgrew the bankruptcy auctions because it was too much labor. It was, it depended on me doing everything. So when that wasn't basically scalable enough, I brought the latex stuff into the fold. And then after the latex business, I thought wasn't scalable enough. Then I started to sell sex toys only because I started to understand the sex toys world online just because I became familiar with, yeah, with latex and somewhat related. So I just discovered it through that. You graduated law school when? Like 2005-ish? Yeah, in 2005, I graduated law school. Okay. Right after you graduated law school? I mean, is that when you were already making money? Can we talk about how much money you were making from, I guess, selling on eBay, the, like, for instance, the Monopoly thing and yeah. what type of money you were making? Okay. My goal in law school was to cover my living expenses and make a little bit of money on the side. So that involved me going to probably two auctions a week. I wasn't making a ton of money. I bet I, I was making two or $3,000 a month kind of doing that on the side. And those were all antiques at the time there in, in South Central Pennsylvania. 
after I graduated from law school and moved to Chicago and started with the bankruptcy auctions, I think probably in my first year of doing it, I probably made 80 grand or so. You know, I had a deal that started me out with the buying and selling of things, which was I found a deal of a restaurant that was going out of business and it was decorated with more than a hundred antique signs oil and gas related signs. And that single deal alone, I bought out the whole restaurant of signs for $8,000. And I took about another month to list everything on eBay. And I probably sold it all for around 25 or 30. So just that first deal kind of got me started and also got me a little bit of cash in my pocket because I graduated with zero. And I guess you were, were you having to pay off your student debt at that point too? Yeah. I graduated with $120,000 of law school debt. So do you have any advice for someone who's thinking about going to law school and not sure because that sounds like that's what uh, happened with you, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of people still doing this. A cousin of mine, I just got a, a graduation notice from a cousin of mine who's like planning on law school and it's like, good luck. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think people realize how hard I worked two summers in law related jobs. One, I did murder defense for the public defender's office in Chicago. And another job, I worked in this kind of fancy law firm doing business related stuff for them. I was a summer associate. I don't think people realize that working as a lawyer is basically, you know, when your CPU on your computer, you know, when your fan goes on because your CPU is at like 120%, that's basically how you make money as a lawyer. And that fan, that's your brain. You just need to be full force thinking. And it's very difficult work that's very tiring. I think people have the idea that lawyers make a lot more money than they do. Most of them don't make a lot of money. I think most of them live a kind of somewhat above average lifestyle from the money that they earn, but they work far harder for that money than many other professions do for the same amount of money. The only people I think that the lawyers people see on TV that earn in the millions, you need to be a top lawyer who graduated from a top law school. You need to have some qualities that like 2% of people have. So if you're 98% of people, you probably don't have the qualities to earn a million dollars a year as a, as a lawyer. Let's just talk about, I guess you were outside Chicago at that point, and you just started a new company then with a new LLC from selling those signs. Like, What was the transition into getting into Beijing? Yeah, well, actually, I just did that all as a sole proprietor. I didn't have any entity until I really started full on with my business when I was in China. The transition was that a friend of mine from law school told me that there was an antique market in Beijing. There's an antique market there called Panjaiyuan. He said he was there as a tourist and he knew I was buying and selling from auctions and I knew about antiques. And he said, if you can't go to China and go to this antique market and make money on the stuff, there must be something wrong with you. So I thought, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. I'll book a vacation to China. My plan was it'd be really cool if I could go to Beijing and pay for it by buying stuff and selling it on eBay. So I did that. I went there. I happened to meet a few guys who spoke English then at this antique market. There were two of them, and I, I still know them to this day. That was more than 10 years ago. Those guys, yeah, they helped me find what I needed. I looked around the market, and in the end, I made money from that trip. I don't know how much, but definitely my trip was paid for, and I made a, a few grand on spending two or three weeks in China, which I thought, that's awesome. But when I came back, and I had a really great time, so I thought, I'd like to do it again. And then I went back a few months later, and I did it again. And there was a two-year period after I graduated from law school before I moved to China, where I went there. I went to China probably five or six, two or three week long trips. 
to buy stuff. The more I went, I started to meet the expats there who were doing all kinds of other businesses. And I just started to realize that that was the place that I wanted to move, that I wanted to build my life from. And, and I thought that I could meet my kind of full potential by, by living there. So after two years, I just decided that I'd move there. And I did. And it was still like all antique stuff at that point. We weren't getting into any of the sex toys. Well, I was doing the latex business, but that was only on eBay. And then my idea to move there was like this. I'd support myself going to the antique market on the weekends for selling on eBay to the world, just shipping from there. And then I would hire a company in Beijing. I had this incorrect idea that it would be cheap or something to hire a company in, in Beijing to build me my first e-commerce website so that I could take all the customers I built up from eBay and send them to my own website and learn how to do AdWords and whatever else. So I supported myself just on the latex sales from eBay at first, then moved to this website, was selling, I was just hustling for stuff from the antique market for about the first year that I was there. And what do you mean specifically just by latex sales? Latex. So the items that I made were like latex cat suits. So it's like a one piece suit that covers your whole body, including your face that zips up the back and it's like a whole, it's like a fetish thing. It's where people have this rubber, this fetish for this material. And then I made all kinds of specialty items for these fetishists. They're, they like to be trapped in rubber bags. They're called body bags. It's like a body bag. Like if you're dead, you'd go into this bag. But this one is tighter and it has some features like it can lock your arms kind of to their sides and you can put zippers for, I don't know, people's nipples. And they had a lot of special requests. And they would send pictures that expensive brands made and they would send it to me and they'd ask me to copy it. And then I send it to the factory and they'd, they'd copy it. I actually got into one, a special niche that I was kind of the leader of for a time. There are these people who are an inflation fetishists and they have a fetish for being inflated in a rubber suit. So it's a dual layer suit and you can pump air through it. You know, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, that movie? So remember when the girl eats the blue gum and she puffs up and becomes blue and the buttons pop off of her shirt? That's like kind of where some of these people kind of lose it. And they want to wear these big suits. So I was one of the only people making it for them and I would participate in their community. And I got pretty deep into understanding several of these kind of niches so that I could supply these things to people. So that's... For some years, that was my main source of income while I built the rest of the business. So how would you test these things out? You mean it, it test out? Well, I'm just wondering like if these different types of suits, I mean, no one was making it. For instance, the blow up one you're talking about right now. Yeah. Did anyone make one before that? Yeah, people had made them, but they weren't making them. I asked the people, I went to their community asking, what do you want? Oh, we want it bigger or we want like inflatable boobs on them or they wanted, and, and I did something else. I always use myself. And to this day, I always use myself in all the advertisements. So I would put on these suits and I did some kind of stunts. Like I walked around Chicago wearing different kind of rubber suits or I went to the mall because I'm not a latex fetishist. It wasn't a big deal for me to dress up in this suit and go to the mall and have myself videotaped and see what people did. But to them, that was like awesome because they would never do that. <laughs> So I just, I created some sort of content around it and yeah. And well, I'm just trying to think about that point too. So you told us also you were having someone make a website and you thought that it was going to be inexpensive. Yeah. What happened with that? Because it sounded like maybe that didn't work out the way you were thinking. It didn't, but it was the best thing that happened because it didn't work out. At the time, they built this website in ASP, this programming language ASP or ASP.net or something. And I didn't realize that at the time, I guess that was used, it was popular in China. The website was quite broken. So I didn't want to go back to this company to fix it. I was looking for other people. I found out then about Get a Freelancer. It was called getafreelancer.com, then became freelancer. Now it was Upwork. 
I couldn't find people who wanted to work on this ASP site. They were like, who used, who built, why would someone build this in ASP? I don't know. Just like what they did. The website was kind of, it worked, but it was kind of broken. I heard that you could hire people around the world in other places to build things for you. And then it's actually because that website was so broken and I needed to rebuild it. That's actually how I ended up meeting this guy in Romania who I've worked with now since 2008. Basically, I put a job out for bidding. I think he bid on it or a similar kind of project. He didn't tell me at the time, but he was in high school. Him and his friends worked in this apartment after school. He had his own apartment then. They would, uh, they would just bid on jobs that they didn't know how to do. And they would say they know how to do it. Then they would, they would win jobs. And then they would figure out how to do the jobs just because they were smart. So they were teaching themselves, getting paid. what They didn't get paid very much. But so anyway, this, this is the way that I met the main guy who runs like half of the, the business was through the failure of this Chinese programming company <laughs> to build me something that worked. What did they end up building you that, that ended up working? So the cool thing is not only did they rebuild the latex website for me, but they built me at the time, this was 2008, a platform. You know, now we use, for example, Magento and there's Shopify and there's everything else. We use Magento, but before then, I guess there weren't that many platforms that were good like that. So we built the business to a million dollars a year of sales on a platform that these guys built while they were still in high school. It allowed us to, I built several different websites on this platform that they built. You know, you could upload images and you could put text in and it was like a, I don't know, and now you could do this on WordPress or Shopify or whatever, but we had our own platform up until about $1.3 million of sales. Can we talk about a little bit more of these details on like how you're able to grow? It seemed like maybe like a one person business kind of growing it from there. Yeah. You mean, how did it grow from at that time? Right. Yeah. Because all the details, you're saying you had multiple sites, right? So you just use the same kind of backend and then made different site names that all had a similar type of thing. Can we talk about what you learned doing that? Yeah. So I'd tell you, the thing is that after when I was selling these latex things around the world, and this was the way we learned how to do AdWords and we learned how to do SEO, basically internet marketing from this latex website. But in the same way, I thought that the bankruptcy auctions business wouldn't be scalable enough. I came to a point where I thought, okay, the latex business is interesting, but it's not going to be scalable at the level that I want. And since then I started doing research about the adult industry in general. That's when I had my idea for the product, which is my main product now, which is called Autoblow. I knew that at the time there was only one company that was making websites, like great websites to sell their own products direct to consumers. And that was Fleshlight. Every other sex toy website at the time, especially, and even still to this day, mostly, they're browsing websites. Like it's one site with 4,000 products. So I had the idea at the time, I saw this product. It was on, I found it on Alibaba or something. These people called it World Master 2000, okay? And I said, that's not the World Master 2000. It's a blowjob machine. And I decided to make a website to say that this product was like Fleshlight, but it's automatic. And this was just a product that another factory at first in 2008, 2009 already made in their catalog. So at the time we built this website out and now it's embarrassing when I have like screenshots from it, it's really embarrassing how it looked. It's just horrible. But I guess in 2009, it looked good. I said it was, uh, it was called roboticblowjob.com. And just at one site that sold two different sizes of this automatic masturbators that I had sourced from a factory. And I basically just bought the products and I had them make my own box for the product. And they would ship these to me in, in Beijing. The way we learned how to sell them was from SEO. You know, this was a time, 2008, 2009, 2010, that it was very easy, not that easy, but you could manipulate the Google rankings back then, I'd say with ease compared to what you could do today. We used to be then on a website, the top result 
for a few years for all these great keywords about male sex toys. And so we just made money to fund the rest of the business or what became the rest of the business by ranking, by doing SEO in Google and selling this robotic blowjob machine. We built this niche for this type of product. So at the time, after I started making money from selling these products, and that might've been, let's say we were selling 20 products a day when it was like going well back then, 20 or even 30 products a day. And we were shipping them from China around the world. So then I thought, oh, I want to branch out into other types of sex toys. I started sourcing women's sex toys. Then we had this platform, that platform that the guys had built in Romania. So then we built a website for this brand I made called Ladygasm. And then I was just chasing different product niches within adult, which in the end wasn't such a great idea. I thought it was. I thought the niche was sex toys, but I later learned like the niches are way smaller than something as broad as sex toys. So I started making a bunch, I sourced a bunch of women's toys. And then I had the idea that a men's prostate toys were becoming popular. And I thought, oh, I should make men's prostate toys. And we made this brand called Mangasm. Started to try to bring traffic. We used to hook up to like a drop shipper. We would sell our own products and we would sell things from a drop shipper. Kind of mixed them all together on these couple of small browsing websites, like 200 product websites. By this time, in order to get to that point where we were making websites that had 200 products on them, I would go to Romania I went there to meet this guy. His name is Alex. And I worked with his team. I went there over several trips like this to work in person. And then later he started coming to China. And then we just started now for these 10 years having these back and forth working trips. But it basically all grew from this first product Autoblow into the other brands and then back to Autoblow, which then became our main thing after we used crowdfunding to improve it. If I'm looking at it, were you trying to make more of a product type company or one with branded? Because it seemed like none of these things were branded. Was that the idea? My idea at the time was that, uh, especially with the men's and women's toys, at the time also, because now the Autoblow is like custom developed. But at the time, I was just sourcing and branding. And I was thinking, wow, all these other brands are wasting so much money. You can see their catalog. The brands would have a catalog. Look, we have like 400 items. And you need to open molds for 400 of your own items. That's ridiculous because the factories have like thousands of items in between them that I could just pick and then brand. So I thought, and the market was also different back in 2008 than it is today. But at the time I thought I could skip the mold costs, skip the invention costs and go right from right to branding and just buy products from factories, brand them and sell them online. And like I said, this was possible back then because there wasn't that much competition. But today I think it's much different and requires a lot more custom development. Yeah, so what have you thought of our group calls so far? I like the proposal so far. I like how insightful it is and it's kind of an extension of your interviews. That's how it feels. And I think that if anybody has a real project they're working on, they can benefit a lot from it. One thing that made me want to join was when you shared the first group call. I heard that episode. I'm like, this is a nice little community. It's friendly. It's genuine. And so that was helpful. I mean, I think my favorite interviews you've ever had are the ones where you've bleeped out their name. I think there was two of them where they were just absolute fails. Yeah, the two Patreon episodes, I think it was number two and then yeah. 17 that just came out recently. It was just like the oddest interaction ever. It was awkward and super, super entertaining. Yeah, well, good. Well, God, I got two entertaining Patreon ones there for you. <laughs> yeah. What actually ended up working and not working, I guess, over those years? And and I want to just make sure we put a time frame on it. So uh, yeah. what year, I guess, do you think 
you started making the right transitions. And I just want to keep on a yearly basis. Yeah, sure. When we started doing that in 2008, maybe when we launched the first website, to the time the business sold about a million dollars a year was probably three or four years. Maybe by 2012 or 2011, 2011, 2012, we were doing a million dollars a year of sales. And that was probably... 60, 70% one website about this Autoblow product and the rest were this mix of 50 or 60 other SKUs that I was sourcing and selling. But still, I needed that wasn't going to get me like a leap. Even if I would grow the other one slowly, I wasn't going to jump to another level of sales. Around that same time is when I realized that if most of my revenue I realized was coming from this Autoblow product, then I was selling one that was just made by another factory and didn't put any effort into making it awesome that if I put effort into making that single product awesome, then I could really make a, a big improvement in the sales and in the happiness of customers as well. Starting in 2000, yeah, maybe around 2011, I decided to start looking for someone to develop the auto blow into a better product. And I ended up finding this company, actually a, a company in, I was already, I was kind of looking, but I didn't know who to trust. And I got an email from this factory in Taiwan that said, I've seen this auto blow online. I've seen some bad reviews. Do you want us to improve it for you? And I thought, oh, this is like very lucky. You're contacting me right when I'm thinking about finding a factory to improve this. This took me on a year and a half of lost time, basically. <laughs> wow. I thought that that was awesome that they were contacting me. And in the end, I went to Taiwan to meet them. My concern from the beginning was that wasn't a sex toys factory. I was concerned in China that I didn't know any factory who wouldn't copy my product or steal the work from me if they did copy it or they wouldn't sell it to other people. I didn't trust that anyone would, would be honest with me in China. So I thought, oh, in Taiwan, I had a better feeling about maybe the ability to find an honest factory. But the problem was from the beginning, this wasn't a sex toys factory. They didn't have any experience in sex toys. They were a high-tech factory. They made this big whiteboard, like a Bluetooth connected whiteboard, like you'd use it in some, like in a courtroom or in a big university. It had all these neat features that just kind of touch sensitive. It was very high tech for 2011 or 2012. They had a very high tech assembly line for controller units for commercial air conditioners. So all oh, these guys are smart guys. They can make controller units for air conditioners. They can make this simple gadget. I was very wrong. A year and a half of delays and back and forth. And finally with a prototype ended in a prototype that I paid them probably 10 or 15 grand by this point to get to the prototype stage. I paid some, yeah, I paid them this money. And in the end it was horrible. They didn't know how to work with the materials. They didn't know anything. It was like a garbage prototype after a year and a half. Then that took me maybe to around 2013 yeah, at some point. And at that time I'd been going to these events in Las Vegas. There's kind of a sex toy show there. It was called the International Lingerie Show, but then this show got canceled somehow. So I would go every year and just walk around, just walk the show. I didn't even know, I wasn't looking for anything in particular. I just figured like I should be where all these people are who make toys and sell toys. And it happened that I met a guy at someone else's booth there, just started chatting. And they said, oh, I live in China. And they said, oh, you live in China. We live in Dongguan in the South. We make sex toys for some brands that are here. And I said, that's cool because I need to make a better product. And he said, let's talk. So just from this chance meeting, these people ended up being the people I used to manufacture Autoblow 2 that changed the business. They're the people who redeveloped the product for me. I worked with them for about a year. And then we were ready to launch on Indiegogo. 
And my Indiegogo campaign launched something like March or April, maybe April of 2014. And I'm looking at it right now. You raised like 375K. Yeah, well, it was like 300 at the time. And then they, they let you continue selling on there, which counts towards your thing. But we raised around 300,000 at the time the campaign ended. Yeah, and how much were you trying to raise? I put 40, but the truth is I needed more like 100 because the issue was even though the business was making money, I didn't have so much cash. And to make the molds for the product and to make the first like five or 7,000 pieces I wanted to make, I pretty much needed something like $300,000 in total. I didn't have that much. I actually looked at getting funding in some other way. And the closest thing I found to funding available to someone who works in the sex toys world is that, you know, because I had regular credit card receipts, what's called a advance on merchant processing. You can get an advance on your merchant processing by these kind of loan shark people. So they would loan me if I wanted a hundred grand or 150, they'd say, okay, we'll loan you 150. And then they would take the money automatically from my credit card receipts, but it's a short loan. It's like a nine months loan. And for loaning 150, they'd probably want 30%. They probably want at least 50 for that, which is cheaper than an investor. So this is my option. And then it's funny because the reason I ended up on crowdfunding I was skeptical of crowdfunding, but I knew a guy in China who made a desk. He was talking about it forever. I didn't think he'd ever do it. And then he launched this stand-up desk. It's like now they're kind of common, but at the time they weren't. You know, you press a button and then your desk, it's a stand to sit kind of desk. And the guy's whatever, he sold a lot of money, 600,000 of them or $700,000 of them on Indiegogo or on Kickstarter. And then just one day I just sat down and I just wrote my entire campaign when I saw that he did that. <laughs> that what? If he did it, I'm doing it. Because it was a kind of foreign idea to me before. Like, I don't know who these people are doing these campaigns. It looks kind of weird. And then when someone I know did it and it worked, I wrote my entire campaign in a day. And I filmed the video, I think, maybe a few days later in my apartment. And we'll talk about, I guess, auto blow too, if that's all right, from this point forward. But how about we just look back for a second. What was your personal life like during this time? Personal life, like... In and talking about that, living in China, I mean, what did you have your friends who were you said were expats at one point? Were you living in an apartment? What was it like living there? Because I think a lot of people might not have that experience. Yeah. So that was a fantastic period in Beijing. That was pre-Olympic Games. The Olympics were there in August of 2008. And say it's all kind of downhill since then in many ways. <laughs> the feeling, it was, I thought of Beijing in 2007, 2008 as kind of like New York must have been when people, when immigrants like streamed in from Europe or something, when it was like this feeling of anything's possible, you can make your dreams happen. And that's still my feeling in a way about Beijing, but now it's a much, it's a more complicated feeling. There was a, a community of expats from all over the world. And especially I think because I'm an entrepreneur, I came to know a lot of the other entrepreneurs there. And the cool thing was that people were just, they just had this attitude that they weren't going to fail at whatever they, they were going to do. And outrageous success was possible there. I have a, a friend who had a video game company, a video game studio there. I have a friend who used to be a, a chef and wound up, now he owns his own boutique hotel. There's a guy I know, he has like a 50 kind of jewelry stores that make kind of plastic fashion jewelry around China. I know a guy who has a chain of cafes, guys who have uh, open English teaching schools or made some kind of weird app that does whatever. Like it just seemed anything was possible. So I guess the neatest part about living there was just how open other people were to sharing. Because everyone, of course, we also had Chinese friends, but the foreigner community was pretty tight. And so you could just start chatting with people and people were open to share. And I think in a way that's different than in the US. And there were interesting events. Like one day I was at the, the antique market that I used to go to there. 
and I met this lady and uh, she asked me, oh, what are you doing? And I said, what are, what are you doing? She said, oh, my husband's the ambassador. She said, you should come over to the house. It's the kind of place where there I was in 2008 at the ambassador's residence in Beijing, hanging out with the ambassador's wife. They invited me to Thanksgiving at their house, which was interesting. So I knew the ambassador from Poland and his wife. So there's a lot of these people who you could just know there. And it's a very different world than the one I came from living in the US. The ambassadors, I mean, did they know what your background was at that point? Yeah, of course. I tell them when they would ask me, you know, when you go to some kind of events at embassies or you meet ambassadors. And most of them, I don't think these these are people who get shaken very easily, you know? Right. Yeah, no, understood. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know, some, some people, I don't know if it would be scared to say anything. I agree with what you're saying. If they're getting shaken about you being a sex toy product company, then they probably shouldn't be the ambassador. Right. These people have a good sense of humor and they've dealt with more complicated issues than awkward conversations. So. And I think that one of the coolest parts about living there also is the travel opportunities. You know, I, I went to North Korea twice when I lived there on vacations. It seems weird, like, you know, in the U.S., oh, you went to North Korea, like, isn't it dangerous? But it was quite common for people to go on these excursions there. I've been all, all over Asia, I think. So I think the combination of everyone else being very open and, and interesting and the speed of the, the city and the amount of wealth that was accumulating there it makes it when you meet people, right? When your peers or when you meet people who have like ungodly amounts of money and then you sort of find out how they made money, it doesn't seem that hard to make money. It seems like, well, you better just to keep up with like other people, you just have to execute. So when everyone is executing, then it doesn't seem that hard. So it was really helpful to be in such a fast growing place. And also you could see a building is not there. And in, in four months, there's a building on a piece of land. And <laughs> I mean, that's how, how fast things happen there. So I also think that the travel opportunities in the region, just the fact that you could break up your year by saying, by just doing totally new things. I'm going to go to Mongolia for a week and work from there. I'm going to go to, to I'm going to go to Indonesia for a couple of weeks and see what it's like. This is actually really important for me to the whole entrepreneurial process. The ability to just change my location inspired me, I think, to do what I did there. And financially, like personally, how much would you say you are bringing in around that time to have the, have the ability to travel or have your own place there? Yeah, let me think. I guess when the, I don't think it was tons of money. I think when, when the business was selling a million dollars a year, I was certainly earning more than a hundred thousand and being single and living there. The cost of living wasn't that cheap, but eating and everything else was very cheap. You take a taxi across the city for like five bucks. So I wasn't really thinking that much about money. I was making enough money, 100 or 120, or I don't know. I wasn't thinking about spending small money on traveling or eating or whatever. Right. Because it's so cheap to get around. Okay. So now we get an idea of like, I guess the net income you're making. How about like from a business like and tax perspective? I mean, did you have your own like accountants there where you taxed underneath their system? How'd that work? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this sounds interesting. I don't think there's anything that'd be such a great idea to describe on a podcast. I've only ever operated a US company. As things became kind of tighter in China with foreigners, foreigners used to feel very free there to do whatever they wanted. And now it's very different. They only started worrying about what foreigners are doing there in the last couple of years. Yeah. So now you don't live there anymore. Is this correct? <laughs> no, but my wife is Chinese and I, I go back and I need to go back for business and I go back for Chinese New Year. So suffice it to say everything was fine and here I am. <laughs> well, yeah, because I guess some people might know you have to pay U.S. taxes even if you're foreign, right? This a is a really honestly disgusting part about being a U.S. citizen is that it's only us and North Koreans. We're the only people who can never escape our country's tax liability. And I think most Americans would think like, oh, so what? Doesn't affect me. 
But when it does affect you and like when all your Canadian friends or your European friends or your friends from every single other country in the world only worry about paying the tax in the country they're living in and you are paying, you've, I've been out of the country for, for 10 years and we have the tiniest benefit for leaving. You basically, if you're out of the country for more than 330 days, then you don't pay income tax on your first like $103,000 of tax but you still owe social security and Medicare on that. So you owe something like 16% on the first hundred thousand. And then you're, they start counting the rest of your money after the hundred thousand. So they give you like a little nibble of benefit, which is like the weakest thing compared to every other country. It really bugs me when I think about how unfair it is that we can't escape it. That's understandable. Cause I've heard that before and I had to deal with that, but I could obviously understand the frustration there. But you brought up one more thing, Chinese new year. What is it like when you're getting something manufactured over there? What's the length of time? Can you tell us about that if we wanted to get something manufactured there? Yeah. Chinese New Year is a big challenge that needs to be planned for. It's different time every year. So it needs to be managed differently every year. It's within like a two month span every year or a month and a half span every year. It's in January or February. It depends on the factory that you're using. But for say, there's a big rush running up to the Chinese New Year time. So if you need something shipped out before Chinese New Year, then you need to plan for that because everyone else is sending in their rush order right before Chinese New Year. They stop working at least or slowing down a week or two before is when it starts to become slow. And then if you're not shipping your stuff out at least two weeks before, if you don't have it picked up two weeks before because it needs to be picked up and sent to the port and clear customs, then the worst part is you could just have it stuck in the port in China and it won't be shipped out until after, and there's a backlog. So, and then people don't come back for Chinese New Year. You pretty much lose a month of productivity, even though it's only a 10 day uh, kind of period. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've heard about that where some of the factory workers don't come back after Chinese New Year because yeah. they get used to not being in the factory for however long. Actually, they don't come back because they're able to get similar employment now in some of their local areas where they're from. Because these people are mostly coming to the east coast of China to work but they might live in the poorer center or west. But there are, of course, now companies and factories taking advantage of the fact that if you put a factory in some area where those workers are all migrating somewhere else to work and you let them work from there, then you have a competitive advantage over other people. And the government, of course, is promoting development in places like that that aren't just on the East Coast. So That makes sense because you said you're one of our first, I think, East Asia, if you will, entrepreneurs. Well, why don't we talk about you leaving Beijing and... I guess making it over to Europe, but was there yeah. a reason why? First, it's the pollution. You know, it's not normal to need to wear a mask to walk around outdoors. It's not normal to look at the sky 80% of the days and see white, the color white. It's not normal to have a few thousand dollars of air cleaning equipment in your house. It's not normal to be obsessed with checking an app that tells you what the AQI, what's the PM 2.5 level outside. It's not normal to have a little meter in your house that's telling you always what's the PM 2.5 level in your house. I mean, it's not normal to tape up your windows and doors on really bad days. So just this feeling of being powerless against the pollution that was obviously harming me and everyone else there became a bit too much to bear and I didn't feel happy about it anymore. Also, I think just from, it was exciting to live there, especially during that time period. But I wanted to live somewhere where I could, I think also when I started to make a bit more money, I wanted to have a, a more comfortable lifestyle. And in China, things were becoming hyper expensive. So say for my apartment, it was quite expensive, but it wasn't 
nice. It was just expensive right. because it was in a really good area. And my little community had like little bits of grass in it, which was a luxury there in the center of the city. So it just didn't make sense lifestyle wise to still be there. Yeah. Then I got married right before I left. And I just thought it'd be great that I, and with my wife also, that we could start our life just in another place. I like being a foreigner, but I want to be a foreigner now with the comforts of home. And, and Germany is like, it's like that. I'm a foreigner here. It's interesting. I don't know what everyone's talking about, but I have the comforts of home here and a nice like medical system. So, <laughs> And so what year did you get married and uh, make that transition? Got married in August of 2016. And then we moved to Berlin in September of 2016 or early 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a specific reason you chose Berlin? Yeah. You know, first of all, the country is very open for immigration. If any European wanted to move to the US, even if they're like some kind of master programmer or scientist, they can't. Our country is basically closed even to the most educated people in the world. Germany goes about it a different way and they want educated people moving to Germany, improving the tax base here. So we actually moved on my wife's they have a visa that's a, a job seeker visa. And if you prove to the embassy, wherever you are, that you have a good prospect of finding work in an area that the German government is interested in, then they'll let you come for six months to find work. And then if you find work, then you can stay. And if you have a certain salary level, you can even have permanent residency in 21 months. It'd be like our green card, but you can do it here in 21 months. And so has she been able to find that? Yeah. And now maybe we're on track for uh, for permanent residency here, which still doesn't exclude me from my, doesn't help my U.S. tax liability situation. Right. It just makes it worse. But yeah, so they're open for immigrations. And it's a very comfortable, very international city with a really nice housing price as well. Not like, it's not cheap, but it's not expensive. And have you had to make any, a lot of transitions with your company or is it basically still mine? And what, how about the manufacturing? Yeah, I don't need to visit factories very often. I need to work closely with the people that make the auto blow for me. And we do that on the phone. We do that on Skype. I go there a couple of times a year. I go to China for a big show, like an industry show. So I still probably go to factories as much as I would before, but now I just need to do a couple of trips every year. I can work from anywhere because my team is in all different countries. So nothing work-wise changed for me. It's actually an improvement because now that I do so much business in the US, this is a great time zone. This is really in the middle of the world. It's the afternoon in China in the morning here, and it's the morning in the US in the afternoon here. And then I'm just on the European time zone so I can deal with my European distributors if I need to. So it's perfect. And what's the size of your company now? Now we do six to $7 million. This year will be six to seven, and it's been that way for the last three years or so. And the people who are on staff, what's the size like? Well, what do the people, different types of people do with your company? Yeah, I can walk you through them. There's this guy, Alex, who's the guy I've been working with for almost 10 years or nine years. He manages all the technical side of the business. He helps the programmer implement what we need implemented. And because he understands the business logic, he's also designed a lot of our own systems that we use. You know, how do we integrate with warehouses? And he built our ERP system. He knows our, our business needs. So he designed some systems that power the business. His father runs the wholesale. So all the orders that come from around the world for wholesale go to his father and his father deals with different warehouses to ship out the orders. We have three full-time customer service. One guy is in Serbia, Dalibor. Tay and her sister Nika are in, this is in Malaysia and Tay's in China. 
those are the only people, and there's one programmer, a full-time, one or two full-time programmers in, in Romania and another city. Everyone else is, is on demand, basically. We have four different designers that I work with in Argentina and Brazil. I, only, I prefer to only hire designers who are from Argentina or Brazil, although there's one also that's from a Canadian Hong Kong guy. Right. Is there a reason for the Argentina-Brazil thing? I'm, I never heard about that. That's interesting. I've kind of, in, in a weird way, stereotyped the world. I work with lots of different countries on Upwork, and I just develop preferences for freelancers from certain countries. Brazil and Argentinian designers, I just found that there's lots of guys there with a really good style who are available at a medium. They're not cheap, but they're not super expensive. It's like a medium price. And those guys have a lot of experience working with big agencies there. The big agencies there, like a big milk company needs a bunch of billboards done, they'll outsource to these guys there. And so then those guys have, they have international quality work that's in print, it's on packaged foods in, in those countries. Yeah, and they're just, they have like a kind of flair for design that I like. How about other countries? You said you kind of yeah. stereotypes for all different types of countries. I only would hire now, we worked in Ukraine and Romania with programmers. I prefer only to work with Romanians for all technical related things about programming if possible. It's a great country for that. There are excellent programmers who are super nice to work with and always looking to add value to projects and also available at a, a medium uh, price. I like when I need a, a design, if I have an idea for a product and I just need some kind of mechanical sketches to show a factory, I go to Russia for that. I only post projects for Russians or I only invite Russians for those or for some kind of 3D design, but I want to explain something to you and then I want you to give me back some 3D designs based on my idea. I just happen to always go to Russia. I hire guys in the US for some kind of specialty thing, like about email marketing or getting some special thing set up with analytics. I just found that there's guys there who know what they're doing. Where, where else is there? Germany. Is there anything, anything in yeah. Germany yet? Or yeah, not yet? there is. In fact, there is someone in Germany. I needed to trust one country to have the keys to our server, right? With all the stuff we've built forever. And I need to trust someone to do a managed hosting for our Magento. And it's a German company that I decided to trust for that. So is there anything else? Everything else, we have warehouses. Those aren't our employees, but we have third-party warehouses we use in Australia and in Europe and in the US. So they charge for warehousing and then they charge per package shipped out. Could you give us, like for warehouses, any tips you've learned? Because I imagine there's many how to choose one, like what to watch out for? Yeah, sure. I used this one in New York. The reason I picked them, there was a time when I was shipping from China everything, and then I started looking around the U.S. for a fulfillment warehouse, and I ended up choosing one where the owner picked up the phone. So I clicked a Google AdWord, and I called the guy, and I asked him what he does there, and he says, I'm the owner. I said, oh, you pick up the phone? He said, when I'm paying $26 a click, I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So, so I was like, oh, this is awesome. The guy's like involved. He paid 26 bucks for this lead on the 3PL solution USA or whatever I typed in. The nice thing was that I've had a lot of these people, these kind of shipwire people email a lot. When they see you in crowdfunding, these big solutions always email you. And there's a reason I don't want to use any of these big solutions because they don't care about me at all. This warehouse that's in upstate New York, it's in a small town. It's a little, maybe it costs a little bit more in the end to ship to because they're not, they're not, I could obviously warehouse right in LA or, or right near a port, but there's low unemployment near a port. So people are like leaving all the time and you can't ever, no one I think would really care about my stuff right at a port. These people don't have a high turnover. They're super nice. They ended up doing all kinds of other functions for me that I, at the beginning, I could never have known I needed. 
hey, I have this shipment coming, but the boxes are screwed up. I need you to take them out or I need you to turn on every single product and then see which ones are broken because I think there's a problem. Or I ended up buying a commercial vac sealing machine. I sent it to them. They keep it there and they vacuum seals dildos for us that we were selling online before. I can basically have them do anything. And there's no way a ship wire will ever be flexible enough to do any extra special services like that. They don't care. Their business is just packages in, packages out. And at the beginning, I thought it would be like that. But reality is that there's far more things you end up needing than a ship wire can do for you. How about like picking one overseas? Because you said there's one in Australia. You talked about one in New York. And do they just handle all your U.S. stuff? Or and then the one in Australia does something else? Could you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, so the, the websites are, there's different websites for different countries. Mainly the business that's outside of the US, it's all Autoblow related. We have Autoblow website and then we have Autoblow website in 11 or 12 other countries. The one in Australia just ships Autoblows in Australia. So when someone buys on the website, the website is connected just to that warehouse and then those orders ship and tracking sucks back into the system for Australia. It was not easy to pick a warehouse in Australia because my test for warehouses in Australia was pretty easy. I need to send a contact to you from your contact us page and then see if you contact me back. And can you imagine that in Australia, 80% of the warehouses who I sent a contact to, like the thing that the guy in the US would, would spend $26 and answer the phone for, they're not even responding to my email. And I ended up using seriously, probably the only warehouse that responded to my email. And they're not even that great. They're actually kind of annoying, but they're the only people who can properly respond to a contact where I'm actually offering to bring you business. So that's how you selected them. But so, <laughs> so you're saying, so what does the auto blow make up its sales today for you percentage wise? Now it's probably 70% of the business is related to the auto blow because what I saw was that it was better to put my time into selling a lot of this one product and really developing the market for this one product and its accessories than going off and trying to see if I could be big in anal toys or big in women's toys or big on whatever the other kind of special toy is because I realized the scale of the market offline is enormous. In the US, we don't use a distributor, okay? We sell to almost every chain store in the United States directly. They buy from us. That's a lot of volume. There's probably a thousand stores that are, are part of a chain or 800 stores or something that are part of a chain. In Canada, we sell to five different distributors. In Europe, we sell to the three largest distributors. So once you start selling offline like that, you see really big volume. And so the more, and there's still countries we don't really sell into. And there's still, in the US, we don't sell to so many individual stores. We sell mostly just to the chains. So with my next product with Autoblow 3, I know that it will make it easier to sell. The product will be better than Autoblow 2 Plus, and it will make it easier to sell to those thousands of individual stores that still aren't our customers in the US market. I really just go and like mostly into this one product and making sure it's in every store because there's so much volume out there and because I'm confident that it's the best automatic product for men. So there's room for it in stores because no one else is really in this niche. Yeah, and where are you located? My company is in Singapore, but I live in uh, Malaysia right now. Cool. Yeah. So why did you decide to become a member? You know, it was really uh, by chance that I stumbled upon your podcast. Yours just popped up. I said, okay, let me just try. And I like your interview style. I thought you asked good questions and I learned a lot. It was quite in-depth. So you mentioned about Patreon that I can get certain benefits. So when I looked into it, I said, okay, why not? I have really honestly already spent a lot of money that I didn't get any return from. I say, why not? I mean, in this journey, there's a lot of things that I spend money on, like the courses I bought, whatever. 
me. I said, why not? I just be a member and I get to speak to you and perhaps I can learn by having a one-on-one with you. That sounds like that's what you see for the future, just kind of focusing more and more on just maybe this one product and not worrying about anything else. Yeah, we were doing Amazon. We were selling all kinds of dildos and vibrators on Amazon. And this was really, in the end, maybe more of a distraction than anything else. It's complicated. It's very risky to sell there. You'll be blowing up a SKU and then a Chinese factory will come in and give you fake bad reviews and then you'll get kicked off for some strange reason. And then the Amazon system is very unfair. And all kinds of strange things happen that aren't your fault that Amazon blames you for. And it's, in the end, unstable. But when I get my product into a chain in the US or in Canada that has 50 stores and they send me a PO and each time every week, if they send me 24, 24, 12, 144, 96, I know I'm not getting kicked out of that. There's no arbitrary guy. Of course, everyone, when you deal with Amazon, you deal with people in India who have no idea actually what they're doing. They'll kick your skew off and then you'll ask me, why was this kicked off? And then send you like a nonsensical email with incorrect grammar and you don't even know what's wrong. But when you sell to a company that owns 50 stores, they just send you POs and you send them their products. And unless you're a bottom five or 10% performing skew, they'll order for many, many years from you. So when you have this choice to deal with this arbitrary, strange thing where you end up in a customer service hell in India, or you can deal with people that you can call on the phone and ask, what's the problem if there's a problem? I just prefer to dealing, the the safety of dealing with this offline world and also growing our own direct sales online through all kinds of crazy media campaigns we do. It's just safer. I think you had outlined that you're talking about, it's more like business to business, I guess now, with you're trying to transition that way than business to consumer by selling to those companies in the youth? Well, it's actually half, you know, by the volume, by the number of pieces, we sell more pieces to distributors and to stores. But when we sell for full margin on our own websites, obviously we earn more more money. So probably the business is something like half-half between stores and our online e-commerce. The online e-commerce is very important to us because this is also our edge over all the competition and it's a hedge against any problems with stores. If for some reason another product came into the stores and just beat us really hard and people stopped carrying our product, I'd have my online channel. If something terrible happened to my online channel, then at least I'd still have my offline channel. So I think it's very important to always be at least kind of half-half in volume there. And because no one else almost in all of the sex toy universe understands how to sell online, how to do the internet marketing that drives sales, that this is our competitive advantage against everyone else doing male sex toys. Do you have any tips on like internet marketing for if we're doing our own product that wasn't in the sex toy industry? What's one thing that really worked out to help you more than anything else? Yeah, well, but it's hard to say unless I would know what kind of product the the person is selling. But the thing that worked for me was that I learned how to turn my product into news. And once a product becomes news, people want to buy it because it's the news. When I did Indiegogo, the Indiegogo campaign went super viral because it features, I think, an awkward video with me. And I guess it was a kind of story that there's a blowjob machine that's like blowing up on Indiegogo. And once that became news, ever since that happened, I'm able to I've done some other stunts online. I've done a vagina contest and some other like genital beauty contests. I've done a, I put out a lot of press releases that became news. When that guy got kicked out of the, when he got in trouble in Brazil, in the Olympics and he lost his speedo, what's his name? Ryan La something. Lockie. Yeah. Or some, yeah. 
When he lost his Speedo uh, contract, I sent out a press release that Autoblow offers him a contract to be the Autoblow. <laughs> okay, yeah. He embodies everything about our product. And this was on a bunch of websites, and I have a lot of things like this that we've done. But every press release, I relate back to the first thing that was the Autoblow and Indiegogo because this is what the journalists maybe remember. I just keep pushing the same button and making sure everyone knows that everything else I do, it's always related back to this. My advice, kind of my experience sharing, is that if you can make a product, when you select a product, I would say to select a product that in some way could be newsworthy, doesn't have to be as outrageous as a blowjob machine, but if there's a newsworthy aspect and you can get it onto a couple of good websites that there's a story there, then you can always kind of go back to that when you're pitching an improved version in the future. You can say, hey, I'm the guy that made this thing and look, here it is on BuzzFeed, you know, or here it is on wherever. And real quickly, I'll tell you how this idea came to me is that when I was living in Beijing, there were bands that would come play there. And these bands were, it was like Blink, uh, I don't know, bands that were popular in the 90s or something. And they had this one song that was on the radio. And then 20 years later, there they are in China filling a stadium of 50,000 people. And how do they do that? It's because they kept pressing the same button over and over. Once they had success, they realized what button they should press and they keep pressing the same button, okay? So once I got Autoblow to be viral, then that's how I get everything else to go viral and I get Autoblow to go re-viral on new things because I've built trust with media brands that know that stories about Autoblow are good and I can prove it to them with some stories that they've already done. Making my product into news or for your listeners to make their product in some way into news is something that will provide value forever and ever and ever because news never dies on the internet. They don't usually remove it. I love that you're saying that at the end because like one of our podcast episodes that we had on, I think it was episode 32, a guy named Adrian, he talked about getting free PR and doing that exact same thing. Make something that's newsworthy yeah, and then make it different. Just going back to that and bring it up to investors if you're looking for investors or whatever, you know, you've got some press for that, but make it, putting on a spin on it that's a little different that makes it newsworthy. Cause if you're just going to be like every other tennis shoe company or whatever you're trying to do, if you don't have some different angle that makes it newsworthy, it's not nearly as interesting to the consumers either. So. Right. And you can sell a lot of products. They don't need to be newsworthy. You can sell, I mean, on Amazon, there are people with yachts driving around and they probably only sell rat poison or whatever. Your product doesn't have to be sexy, but if you can make one that's a little sexy and get it in the news, it's better. <laughs> I think it's, it's definitely a path that works. Well, I appreciate you kind of closing on that. I mean, is there anything else that looking back on your entrepreneurial journey that you think is important for someone who's starting a company or maybe a person trying to get out of law school that maybe they don't want to do law school and they realize that, but anything else that if you're starting your own company that you think people should take into account? Yeah, I think it's important to kind of to be all in. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll end this by telling you one of the best things maybe that ever happened to me was that I failed the bar exam. And I already wasn't going to work as a lawyer when I failed it. I failed by two points. But when I got this news that I had failed it, I thought, that's terrible because I just studied for a few months. But I thought, that's awesome because now I don't have anything to go back to. You know, my parents and friends said, well, if you if it doesn't work out with this eBay business, you can always go be a lawyer. So you'll always have a backup. And I thought the backup is the worst thing ever. If I always had a backup, what about the moment maybe where I, there were months when I was doing my bankruptcy business where I, I didn't sell things fast enough and I had credit card debt. I couldn't pay, I should pay off the card. I would buy on credit and I'd pay off every 30 days. But there were times when it was kind of failing, but it wasn't, it didn't fail, but it was, I was a little worried. So if I had a backup, there might've been a few times during that kind of whole journey that I would have thought, oh, well, I guess it's enough for this. I better go back and 
go to my backup. But because I didn't have a backup and because I went into it knowing that I didn't have a backup, I think it made me a lot stronger throughout the whole process. So I don't know if you can, how people can not have a backup, but if they can do anything to kind of make it a little, not to de-risk it, but to like pro-risk it, I think it'll actually lead to a better result for most people. We appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. It's very interesting and very different. So thank you again, Brian, for coming on and sharing your story. Thanks for having me on. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more product-based interviews, then consider these episodes. Episode 73 with Stephen of Tower Paddleboards. Episode 63 with Dr. Dan Cohen of Breathe Right Strips. Episode 58 with Alijo of Blue Smart Luggage, a Y Combinator company. Episode 56 with Corey Tall of Climate Sleeping Bags. We'll try episode 54 with Mike Otis, where he talks about running a family door company for 20 years. And episode 49 with Josh Sherman of Yeah Nice Beanies. Wait, 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 hold on. Before you go, I'm sure you know by now we have plenty of Patreon episodes to fill your passion bucket up with more business interviews. So check that out. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.